The first thing I want to do this morning is turn our attention to a couple of passages. The first one is in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. So if you can turn your Bibles, we're going to go, this is, this morning is going to be a little bit more technical. And so I don't want to lose you in this. And so I'm going to tell you my motives up front from the scriptures so you can see why I think it's important that we discuss this aspect of soul care. Um, It's a constant tearing down and building up. And it has to be both and in process of the way we think about soul care, the way we think about practical ministry, the way we think about applying the Bible has to fit in both of those categories, learning what to tear down, which the world is trying to implement, and then also what to build up in relation to the scripture. How, is, how do we mine the scripture appropriately in order to build a pattern of soul care that we see leaning upon the appropriate things that scripture tells us to lean upon, his word, the spirit, his people, that sort of thing. So Colossians chapter two, you find a hint of this in verse four, but then I'll, I'll read verse eight. And this is a part of Paul's motivation. This is after he has talked about um, Christ. In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And notice how he contrasts. And he thinks this is important. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of, of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So what Paul is contrasting is he's helping us to see that There are ways that people rationalize the data that they see out there, and they're trying to put it into some sort of form of meaning to make sense of life and the way we should live life, but be cautious, because those ways don't lead to Christ. In fact, the wisdom is not found in Christ, and so we need to be cautious about that. Turn over to Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Titus chapter 1, verse 9, and I, I say this in in part because of our culture. I take this a step further in part because of our culture. Our culture is very, very sensitive to anything that's spoken that's of a critique or, or negative. And we have to be wise in the way in which we do that, certainly speaking the truth in love, but that doesn't mean that we limit ourselves in speaking against certain things. Titus 1, 9, what, what Titus is doing here is giving qualifications of elders, of elders in verse 9, this is what he says is a part of their job description. He says, um, telling them to be hospitable, loving, what is good, sensible, just, devout. Verse 9, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and, so you see this twofold aspect of his ministry, and to refute those who contradict. So this morning, what I want us to talk about is a comparison of different counseling philosophies. And that's a part of what I want to do is I want to make sure that we're building up appropriately what the scripture describes as proper biblical soul care. But yet at the same time, paying attention to other counseling philosophies, other means by which we look to to satisfy our soul, to settle our soul, to deal with issues that we think um, are of human issue, uh, human issues that, that we have in our, in our present day. So that's a part of what I want us to do today. And so if we can get that slide up, Steve, that would be great. What I want to do, and you have this picture, portrait, uh, on your notes, but I want us to see a spectrum here, a spectrum of counseling philosophies. Now, when we talk about counseling, often our minds go into some sort of professionalized, technical, sort of detailed uh, mentality. 
And I want to break that down broadly into three basic categories when we think about uh, how to approach people and their problems. So now, I want to make this distinction very, very clear. So when we talk about psychology, okay, I have a lot of issues with psychology broadly, but when we talk about psychology, for our time this morning, I'm talking about the practice of psychology, which is counseling psychology. Okay, that's a distinction. It's, a, it's the way in which uh, men in the past have taken forms and theories, and they've tried to implement those in the practice of counseling, trying to understand people's problems and then find solution to those problems. Now, that takes statements about human nature, the way we understand human nature, what we think is wrong with man, what we think ought to be right about man, and then how we think we fix those things, which we would comparatively say is broken. So that's a counseling psychology. So if we were to to look at this spectrum, you have three basic categories. Now, I wish it were as simple as it appears on that slide. It just doesn't work out quite like that. So you have this massive spectrum. And broadly, we would say secular, that which is detached from the wisdom of God. There's no attempt at all whatsoever to, to root themselves in the wisdom that comes from God. This is all done just basically from secular humanistic type wisdom. And this would be the people like, can you name some of those people? Right? Who would they be? Freud. Freud. Yeah, certainly would be uh, pinnacle among, among those. Anybody else? Some of you have studied psychology. Skinner. Yeah, B.F. Skinner would be one of those. Yes. Who else? Young. Jung. Yeah, that's right. So, you guys, this is good. You guys are educated on this stuff. Okay. Now... It's important that we understand those people. In that category, here's one primary distinction I want you to understand is, is it's not that they're observing nothing. They're observing certain things, but they're observing that data from a, a distinct disposition, a distinct framework, if you will. For example, Freud, I think what made Freud possible in the world in which we live is uh, Freud had a very uh, evolutionary mindset, a very Darwinian focus, really messed up views about uh, human growth and development and sexuality and, and all sorts of things. But it was a framework nonetheless. And what he's doing is he's taking what he observes in man and he's trying to fit that into a framework. Now, Freud is different than Skinner. So Freud would be what's called a psychoanalytic thinker, right? The primary psychoanalytic guy. And then Skinner is what's called a behaviorist. This would be people like Ivan Pavlov, right? The ringing bell and the dogs and the salivation and, and all that sort of thing. Um, this would be a, a whole host of people would think in, the, in those terms. That's called behaviorism. Okay? And there is, you see some sort of natural understanding of, of the way we behave and that sort of thing. But, but it comes from a very distinct disposition, a very distinct framework. The thing you have to respect about a behaviorist is they're consistent with their philosophy. Okay? They take evolutionary thinking to its logical conclusion, really believing that man is simply the highest form of animal and anything that he does is instinctual. And so how do we, how do we repair him? How do we make him right? First of all, do you ever think about who's the arbitrary person sitting in some chair somewhere saying what ought to be and what ought not to be? When we think about behaviorism, what's appropriate behavior and what's inappropriate behavior? And then we go through some form of uh, positive or negative reinforcement to achieve whatever the outcome is that we want. It's a certain framework. And in that framework, we're giving value to what we think ought to happen and what we think should not happen. 
and then striving in some way with a solution, right? I would say a form of salvation to try and make things right within man, to restore man to some degree. And then you have what's called the third force of psychology, which is probably most prominent. We see an eclectic sort of view of all those things, but but what we see most prominent in our day is what's called humanistic psychology. This would be people like Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow, hierarchy of needs and that sort of thing. And now we've grown, we're 60 years removed from uh, really the pinnacle of Maslowian thought, but it still pervades the way that we think in a massive way. Now, if we, if we were to think about the secular spectrum, if we were to have you know, Freud and Rogers and Skinner all hanging out, and we were to do a panel, a question panel, it'd be really, really intriguing. And I could probably ask some really good questions that would entertain us for the rest of our time. And they would disagree vehemently on the nature of man, on what they think the problem is. And then particularly, they would disagree very vehemently on what they thought the solution would be. And this is how you get in uh, among those three forces, these three frameworks, basic frameworks of counseling psychology and how we help people. This is how you get now, the last count uh, that I've read is about 500 named different types of therapies. Now, what that tells us is the secular world, at least in my opinion, is quite confused or just power hungry. They want to have a name for themselves, and so they create this new theory, which is slightly different than the theories before. And so now look at what I've discovered about humanity. But it does tell us something about um, the way we sort of assume that, that science works. And I would argue social science is very different than what we would talk about relative to the hard sciences. But we sort of assume that science has it all together particularly when we think about the social sciences, we sort of had this underlying assumption that it's equivalent to some hard science. And all you have to do is just see from 30,000 foot to say, yeah, they don't have it all together. They're really confused and they really don't understand what's going on and they bicker and battle back and forth about what's appropriate and that sort of thing. So in this category, you have um, lots of different theories, lots of different ideas about man, who man is and, and how we fix those problems that we think man man has. And those things are in competition. Now, remember, I told you that that's disconnected from an aspect of God's wisdom. So now if we look at the middle category, there's also a spectrum. And we would call this, um, this category integrationist. Okay? So when you think about integrationist, simply what they're doing is, is taking the extremes of both of that, the, the spectrum. And on one side, they're saying, we're going to take the value that we see in the secular world, okay? the things that we think natural man has discovered or whatever, and we're going to take the best of that, most of the time in form of techniques or methodologies, and we're going to try and apply that to humanity. But we also have our foot in the the theological world. So when we want to take what we believe to be Christian, distinct, theologically appropriate ideas and mold those two together. Now, I want to be fair to say that any integrationist, um, well, I won't say any, most integrationists Uh, do have strong convictions about the Bible. They even try to make articulation uh, that the Bible is sufficient, even though they would describe that certainly very differently than me. You could probably guess I'm I'm in the biblical category, the the far category. I don't know which side it is here, the far left category, which sounds odd. I like it this way because it's the far right (laughs) category. Uh, But integrationist, okay? So the the, the idea of integration is we're going to take what we believe to be true about theology, and we're going to mix that with what we see to be 
what, what we arbitrate as uh, appropriate wisdom from the secular world. And that's, based, that's the, essentially what integration is. The, the problem with that, at least from my perspective, and, and again, like you can't nail down an integration as to, to one thing. There are lots of, there's a huge spectrum of the different types and styles of integration. Some would be much closer to secular therapists to the point to where they would say secular psychology is its own distinct way of understanding man. And man is so compartmentalized that, that yes, there are appropriate things that deal with the quote unquote psychological at which we can only find out through a scientific inquiry in the study of psychology or in the study of man naturalistically. Okay. Are you following that? If you're confused, just write your question down and we can have coffee at some point. Okay. And, and I enjoy coffee. So, you know, we can talk about that for a long time. And then, um, when you think about the, the people who are closest to us, there is a distinct conservative Christian vein of integration that sounds often a lot like us, but there's still a huge dependence upon uh, secular theory as a framework. The problem, can okay, I just say this broadly? Again, we have a short time. I want to get to a lot of stuff. But the problem I see in the middle category is we try and borrow from the secular theories without understanding that they come with a framework. So, for example, when you do things like word association in Freudian psychoanalytic thinking, the reason that that's a technique in Freudian psychoanalytic thinking is because the way he thinks man is in his essence is that there's something that's below the surface that, that we can't get to, that he's not aware of, right? What do we call this? Does anybody know? The conscious or the subconscious, right? This is the part in the Freudian iceberg that's below the surface, and he's just operating based on some forces that he's not aware of. And so we do this word association to try and bring that out to consciousness. Does that make sense? So there's a technique, but it's rooted in a system. It's rooted in a framework of the way that I understand who man is. Now, biblically, do we say that that's the system that we operate in? What's the way in which things are brought to life in our life? Does that system correspond to what we believe to be true about human nature? You see, this is the distinction where we have to think on that level and to say, no, no, the Bible makes very clear that, yes, there are things that we can't understand or uh, that we're deceived about in our own life, but how is that brought to light? 2 Corinthians makes very clear the way in which that's brought to light is the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 4 makes very clear it's the Spirit through the Word, the living and active Word that can understand the thoughts and the intentions of a man's heart. So you see what happens is a recognition of something being hidden, but now a methodology that sounds appropriate and doable in our human systems, but is dismissal of the Christian idea of how these deceptions are actually revealed or brought to awareness through the Word, through the, the power of the Spirit. And so we can't just adopt methodologies and think they're okay they're clean, they're neutral. We're going to overlay those with scripture and it makes everything okay. Because all of those techniques, all of those methodologies are rooted in secular, divorced from God's wisdom systems. Does that make sense? So this is, in my view, the problem with integrationism. And I think you see warnings consistently throughout the Bible, starting in the Old Testament and certainly flooding in the New Testament, particularly with Paul, 
where there's a constant warning against human wisdom that infiltrates, muddies the water, if you will, on how we understand man and how we think about God and his salvation and how we're restored. So every single counseling system seeks to understand man and his problems and develop a way to deal with these problems and to teach him how to live in a full and meaningful way. Now, that's a noble task. It's a noble thing to try and do that. It's a noble thing to try and understand humanity, humanity's problems, and how we fix those problems. Okay, so do you see those three categories? Now, what are some common psychological ideology? And these are the things that you need to be paying attention to. So this is 30,000 foot. I'm going to do this rapidly. So then we can get to a way, a a grid that, that I've thought through that will help us to distinguish, right? That helps you to have some sort of tool to understand how to distinguish these types of ideologies appropriately. Now, when we get to that, this is not limited, okay? This is not limited to just counseling secular theories. This is helpful in really anything to think biblically appropriate about philosophies or ideas in life, okay? So let's think about it like this. 30,000-foot view. What are some of the common psychological ideologies that you'll see? And you can take, if you've read Freud or Skinner or particularly um, the, the humanist, the humanistic theorist, if you've paid attention to those guys, you will, you will see some of this flavor coming out. And you can even see how saturated our culture is with these types of ideas as you see these types of ideas flourish in, our, in the culture in which you and I live in. Okay, so number one, common psychological ideology is that human nature is basically good. There are really only three options when you think about human nature and how we understand human nature. Okay, the first option is that human nature is basically good. The second option, which has definitely been a philosophy in our history past, is that human nature is neutral. And then we have to describe why he's corrupted by several things. Okay, so this is where you get in environmental determinism and that sort of stuff. So human nature is either basically good or human nature is neutral and something from the outside corrupts him. Or in Christian theology, we have a very distinct way of thinking about that. We believe that human nature is born into sin, that we are corrupt. Now, you have to understand that this is a massive distinction. And we have to pay attention to these things and how we, how we think about the problems of life. And you can understand that if we walk into this believing that human nature is basically good, then the way in which we describe the things that we do bad have to come from some explanation. And you can see broadly, okay, this is broad, you can see broadly the two basic categories in which we start to try and make sense of the problems that we have in life are either environmental determinism or biological determinism. Are you following that? So something's wrong with your body and your brain or it was your mom and dad who really screwed you up kind of idea. Does that make sense? Or the environment that you keep. Now, nobody's saying that those things aren't influential. That's true. But they would describe it now as being deterministic, okay? And so often they're not going to come out and say, yes, we believe man is awesome and we think he's great. It's going to come in the form of this is what we think is bad about man and this is how we repair man, is we're going to fix his, um, we're going to fix his biology. They're, they're assuming that man is good and this is what's broken. So that's how you'll typically see that come out. The second part is people have the answers to the problems inside themselves, 
Now, we can go about distinguishing every single one of these, but you can see immediately the biblical problem here. Is the Bible makes clear that we deceive ourselves and the answers to our problems are not inside of us. They are what God has revealed in his word for us. And what's inside of us is actually what needs to be corrected. The Bible describes your flesh as one of your greatest enemies, not one of your greatest allies, you see. C, the key to understanding and correcting a person's attitudes and actions lies somewhere in that person's past. Now, this is a den- not a denial of, from me that the past is not influential. It certainly is influential. But we're responsible for how we respond to everything that happens in the past. And I would never say that your past is determinative or creates an identity for you. Does that make sense? And so we have to be cautious when we start hearing uh, that that's what makes us the person that we are. Um, e, Human problems can be purely psychological in nature, unrelated to any spiritual or physical condition. uh, condition. I think that if we start to limit things to purely psychological in nature, what happens is you're unnecessarily compartmentalizing man. And when you do something like this and you delineate a distinctly psychological part of man, you actually remove that aspect of man outside of any spiritual category. What's the problem with that? Well, that Jesus has no bearing on that compartmentalized part of man. Biblically, I think that's a problem because when you see the beauty of the redemption of Jesus, it's not just for a portion, not three quarters of man. It's actually for the whole of man, both body and what? Soul, okay? So we have to be very cautious to pay attention to the theories that we are imbibing and sort of eating like candy. And most of what we see in our culture today is actually antithetical to what we would say is very clear foundational biblical doctrine. We have to be cautious about that. F, deep-seated problems can be solved only by professional counselors using therapy. Now, what you see here, and there's a man in 1979 named Paul Vitz, who was a Catholic thinker, and he basically built this theory, and he was absolutely right when you flesh it out. And he, he talked about the Freudian system, how it really is a replacement of religion. He called it, he, his book is called Psychology as Religion. And he talks about those who are the, the trained therapists, the people who go to school for long, long periods of time. And I'm not debunking education. Education is helpful. But he, he talked about all these guys who are professional theorists who go to, you know, go to school for a long period of time to understand how to do these things. And he talked about them as really a replication of the the pastorate in religion or the bishop or the priest in religion and that their doctrine is simply Freudian thought, secular ideology, and then we're trying to conform people to a certain form of religion of what we say is good about man. And the parallels are absolutely stunning. I think he's absolutely right. And that's what we see happening. These things are not neutral. They are attempts really to begin to replace um, religious ideas. Because human beings are religious by nature, and we'll replace that worship and desire to worship with something. G, Scripture, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. And this is a constant, even to this day, this is a constant thing that I hear all the time. Scripture, prayer, and the Holy Spirit are inadequate and simplistic resources for solving certain types of problems. What a convenient statement. Because do you see what's happening in that statement? You read in the scripture constantly about how we're called to be patient and wait upon the Lord. And yet the way we make um, that sound is that that's simplistic, outdated, and inadequate. And I think it just demonstrates an impatience with us as people to cease waiting upon the Lord. 
to cease waiting upon the Lord to do what, what he deems right and correct. Do you see how just subtly that takes our dependence away from Christ? It takes our dependence away from the word. And it takes our dependence away from the work, as we've been learning so well in the month of January, from the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now we're looking for something else that's really Gnostic in its system, insightful through some other means, as opposed to being patient to wait upon the work of God by the means that he says this will happen as he restores our soul. Now let's transition that with biblical wisdom. And part of what I'm trying to to help you to do is to, to just think biblically. As you encounter these philosophies, they sound good. And with rhetoric in the world, they sound actually appropriate. And a lot of people, particularly in the integration category, overlay that with Scripture, and it sort of sounds like maybe this is okay. But you have to be cautious and careful. These are key tenets of what I would call biblical wisdom. Biblical counseling begins with an understanding of the nature and character of God as revealed in Scripture, followed by a biblical view of man. I think this is one of the most important and key aspects. If I were to argue... One of the greatest detriments of the influx of psychology in the last 150 years that's happened to our culture, it is the changing of our understanding of the nature of man. And as a byproduct, our understanding, the denigration of our understanding of the nature of God. Because how is it that we understand man, biblically speaking? You can never understand man rightly without first understanding God, because God is the only independent being, and man cannot be understood in his fullness without him being understood in the means that he's dependent upon God. And so secular theorists begin to remove this ideology of God. Man becomes the pinnacle. That is the shape of humanism itself. That is the religion of our culture today. When man becomes the pinnacle, now we try to understand man divorced from God, and the errors abound. Scripture is superior to human wisdom. The Bible makes this clear in many, many places, 1 Corinthians 3. And you see a contrast. It's not that they, the secular world doesn't have wisdom or doesn't have a wisdom. But what is the, how does God contrast that in his word? The wisdom of men is what? Foolishness to God. And the wisdom of God is foolishness to men, you see. So we have to be cautious in and careful here. The next thing, the Word of God is more effective discerner of the human heart than any earthly means. Biblically speaking, Hebrews 4, 12, I would also add 13, uh, because the Bible makes clear that God exposes us to the point to where we are fully exposed. There's nothing known to humanity that can expose a man and the depths of man and the, the heart of man, the, the inner parts of man, the way that God claims His Word can do by His Spirit. There's nothing else. No x-ray machine can accomplish that. An x-ray machine doesn't tell you the story of why the bone's broken. It just tells you the the bone's broken. So so our human nature, right, our secular psychologists can say, yes, that's broken, and man, something's not right. Something's abnormal. But when they start, and that's description of problems. So man can do that. Man can have snapshot x-rays of what we think is wrong with man. The problem happens is when now they start explaining why they think there's a problem. See, the x-ray is helpful, but the x-ray machine doesn't tell you how that got broken. 
Does that make sense? How the bond's broken. That makes sense to you, hopefully. The next thing, the Spirit of God is uh, the only effective agent of recovery and regeneration. Biblically speaking, we have a system. The Bible acknowledges that people are broken fully. It gives the explanation that actually corresponds best to reality that we experience. But then the Bible also very clearly declares how we're restored, not just in one aspect of man. You see, here's what happens with a lot of integrationists is they, they, they create a dichotomy, if you will, or they compartmentalize man and they say, well, the Bible is completely sufficient for everything that's spiritual, okay? But psychology or secular wisdom is helpful for everything that's non-spiritual. You see that compartmentalization? Okay, that has, that has bearing on what we think to be true about Jesus and the extent of how Jesus will restore humanity, Because my question to you is, what did Jesus die for, and why was he raised from the dead? To restore what? Certain compartments of who man is? I would argue absolutely not. The fullness of Jesus, Revelation 21.5, is that he will make all things, what? New. Is that just the immaterial, right? The, The... Immaterial things that we can't see, is that, is that just the part of what Jesus will renew? No, no, he will renew everything, natural or material and immaterial. And so we, we cannot compartmentalize the way the Bible does not compartmentalize. Or we start to see that our doctrine is diluted. The next thing, the goal, the goal of biblical wisdom is progressive sanctification. That defines human change. It gives categories of what ought not to be, what ought to be, and then how we pursue that that change in a way that's honoring to God and good for us. And so, so God actually gives a system of how we're to be restored, and it's called sanctification. That's why I argue this: is every secular theory is an attempt to replace the holy the work of the Holy Spirit in the way in which man changes and how he's restored and what he's aiming at to be restored, and then it's a hijacking of the doctrine of sanctification. Are you following that? The way that a man changed and the reason that he ought to be changing. The goal is Christ-likeness. Biblical counseling offers real hope for change in life and eternal change to come. So the beauty is not just, yeah, it is eschatological hope. I think we need to return that, right, to the church. Make eschatological hope great again, okay, is what we should do. But that the beauty of eschatological hope is it's always building in us hope now. So it's not just something that we're waiting, distant, and it's coming. The, the beauty of that hope becomes biblically motivation for how I live today. So it makes sense in, in life. All treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Here's how I would say this. is I'm not saying there's not wisdom out there. Okay, There is wisdom out there. But, but here's the thing. Can we just first mine all the, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ? And once we exhaust the treasures of wisdom and knowledge found in Christ, well, okay, then we can turn our attention elsewhere, all right? So if you're following that, I would say that that's an endless bucket. Good luck with exhausting that. But let our posture and focus and attention be on exhausting the beauty of the wisdom that's found in the Lord Jesus for understanding life and the way we ought to live life and what's wrong with us and so on. That's what ought to happen, at least I think. What, what the problem in the middle category of integrationists is their posture is looking out there for new revelation. 
is that God is going to reveal something that's helpful to us. The question that I have, which is a book I'm going to write, don't let this get out, okay? I don't want this to be stolen. But what did the church do before Sigmund Freud? If, if this was unbelievable revelation that is necessary for our good, what in the world did we do before he came along? It says something about our doctrine of revelation. We have to be cautious because sometimes you see how easily we can be deceived. Oh, that sounds really good. But the implication of what it says to be true about God and man and his word, it matters. And we have to, be, we have to pay attention to those things. The last thing I'll say is, uh, on that subject is the scripture is totally sufficient. Totally sufficient for the counseling task and for care of souls. And you can see in 2 Timothy, he makes the argument of the beauty of Scripture and its fourfold task and what it accomplishes. In the final verse, in verse 17, he says, and it equips us for some good works. No, no, see, the beauty of Scripture is it's practical. It equips us for every good work or all good works that we do. So everything that we do, that we put our hand to do, that is pleasing to the Lord, the Bible says the Scripture is sufficient to, to help us for that, 2 Peter 1.3. Now, to the category, okay? So we have 10 minutes to do this, and we're going to do this the best we can. The category. So these are basic tenets, basic ideas. Here's what you have to see, is when, as well-meaning people, who are, uh, I would argue, are misguided, but that's just my opinion. So well-meaning people try to mold these two things together, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. Now, I understand the fact that, you know, there's this posture of, well, I don't want to limit someone from getting help from something that might be helpful. Get that totally. But I think we have to be cautious because sometimes what happens is we don't see the implication. We don't see the implication of what's happening. Remember, I've taught you throughout this whole thing that whatever we think, say, and do makes a statement about God. Always. And so when we think about these secular theories, you have to begin to ask those questions, those ideas, those philosophies, Right? Those ways of wisdom, those categories or frameworks, worldviews of how we see and understand life, they are not neutral according to the reality that God has revealed himself. So God has a way in which he's described what's good and what's evil. That's wisdom according to the Bible. You see this from Genesis and all the way through the, the whole of the, the scriptures. This is what defines maturity for us is do we understand life and reality according to the wisdom of God? What's the wisdom of God? It's what he says is good and what he says is evil. And we have those same categories. And we're growing to understand those same categories. But there's a secular wisdom of how to appropriate life. What they say is good and what they say is evil. So there's an alternate wisdom. And it's constantly at war with the wisdom of God. When you hear in the, in the New Testament, Paul warns Timothy that in the evil days... People will say that good is evil and evil is good. That's not theoretical to you and I anymore. Like this is a reality that's unfolding around us where people, it's like disorienting. Do you feel that way in the culture in which we live today? It's like, are, are, are we serious? Did we really just say that this was appropriate and this is okay and that that's in the category of good for you? When God says that's absolutely evil and wicked, do you feel the tension there? There's not a place that this happens more, at least in my opinion, than when we're dealing with issues of counseling. Because what we're dealing with is, is the depths of human nature and the way in which we understand man. 
And so here's where we have to be cautious. I'm going to give you four basic categories. Now, here's the tension that you're going to feel in this, is people will say something like this. Well, psychology is a social science, so we don't want to pit science against faith. Do you feel that tension? And so what we do is we say, okay, this is a category, and yes, we uphold this very highly, but then we have to give some sort of credence to this whole idea of social science on this side, okay? When in reality, okay, and this is not, please, hear what, I wish I had time to flesh this out, but I'm not denying science. What I am denying is that what we call social science is actually science. What I would argue, and I think I could do this pretty clearly, what I would argue is that social science as we know it, particularly when we talk about psychology and sociology, and listen, I'm a psychology major undergrad, minor in sociology, I understand these things to some degree, is I would argue that those are philosophies employed attempting to hijack legitimate science and use the language, which is called scientism, use the language of science to validate what they argue, and what they articulate. So I think what we're after here is there's a philosophy of how to live life that operates under the guise of science, and we don't want this whole Copernican revolution to dump on the church again, so we're like, we don't want to pit science and faith. And so we can't touch what they're saying over here. We just got to like lump it in with what we say. Here's the problem is that it's a philosophy. It's a wisdom. It's a way of seeing man that's against, not neutral to, against what the Bible says. And this is a huge distinction. Now, let's see if we can do this. Philosophy is understood in four categories, right? If you hate philosophy, I was scared of it too. It was the last class I took in seminary because I thought I'm too dumb to take philosophy. I don't think I can handle it. But what I found out is, man, this really opens up so much in how we think. All you're doing is asking the primary questions. Who is God? Who's man? What's the problem with man? And what's the, what's the solution? That's what you're doing. So just boil it down like that. In any type of system okay, that, that tries to understand man in a certain way, you have to ask these questions. And here's what you have to understand. They are giving, when they give their views of philosophy and how they think about humanity and life and how they pontificate about all the quote-unquote realities of the world, they, are, they have to deal with these categories. They can't neglect these categories because their silence in the category is making a statement about some of these categories. Are you following that? I don't want you to be confused in this point. This is why this is so important to me, where we can't just be like, you know, play patty cake and everybody get along on this stuff is because it has implication with sound doctrine. Because they're not saying neutral things about God and we can just all hold hands and get along. Okay, so what are they saying about God? Remember back to our panel up here with Freud and Rogers and Skinner? If I were to ask a question about what they think about God or religion, all the vehemence would stop. All the disagreement would cease at that moment. And that would be the one subject upon which they would all agree. And what they would say is that religion is actually neurotic, neurosis, or damaging to humanity. A true view of God is actually damaging to humanity. They would put that in the category of something that's a problem of man, not something that's healthy. So even at the start, they don't pontificate the same way we read systematic theology and give their views of God. It's often in the way in which they're silent about it, in the way they exalt man to position of God. But you can still see what their view of God is. And the question that you have to ask is, is that a biblical view of God? And if it's not, 
they don't start in the right place because everything else finds its meaning and purpose. Okay, Remember Romans eleven thirty six, That all the creation was made by him, for him, and through him. So you can't just disconnect something from a right view of God and understand it appropriately. It's impossible to do that. So we have to understand God appropriately first. So everything that comes after that in their explanation of the realities of the world is going to be disconnected. And what they describe as good and evil will be radically opposed to what God says is good and evil. Do you see the problem? So we start there. And you need to understand, this is why I say you have to be saturated with the scriptures to know who God has revealed himself to be. And now you can begin to see through that lens clarity in the way in which they describe things. You have to pay attention. The second question is anthropology. Who is man? And the Bible teaches particular things about man. So when we talked about the common psychological ideologies or thoughts about man, what do they say? Either man is neutral or man is born good. Now, if you pay attention to that, again, when you're just hearing their rhetoric, it sounds convincing. But when you pay attention to where they begin with man, that man is good, and we have to do things to help preserve that within man or empower, this is humanistic psychology, empower man from within so that he can just flourish and cast off any type of authoritarian things on the outside so that he can flourish from the inside out. Nothing could be more damning to humanity than that. And listen, we're not even experimenting with that anymore. That's like happening right now. And what are we seeing? Culture is being completely destroyed from the inside out. So God's word, again, proves true. Right. So what you can see is if you're paying attention to the culture, it gives you such confidence in the word that God wrote that mail. God said when we were divorced from him and when we don't understand man appropriately, what would happen? We cave in on ourselves, and that's happening right now. So we have to understand clearly who man is, what the goal of man is. Um, I ask this question frequently, what is it that makes man healthy? If you don't start with God and end with God in the way in which you think about man and how we're related to God and what he does to restore man back to his original design in his image, to flourish in that image, to explain and express the image of God, then we don't understand the full term of health, biblically speaking. We start to describe man in compartments. And listen, those are not neutral statements about the doctrine that we hold so dear. One of the most dangerous things throughout history is when we hold confessions or doctrinal stances intellectually, but practically we do something different. This is why confessions have had to be written and rewritten and rewritten over time. Is because people hold something with their mind, but don't confess that with their life. And we have to be cautious about that. The third thing, and maybe this is one of the most important, is homardiology. Maybe you've heard that term. It's just all that means is what's man's problem? Okay, homardiology is the doctrine of sin. We in Christian theology cannot explain all the problems of man without referencing sin, whether we're talking about personal sin or corporate sin, right? The sin of Adam that now places a curse on the world, at which the, cur- the Bible says because of the curse now is groaning, it's broken. So we can explain in the reality of the world why things are broken. It's a biblical doctrine of homardiology, d- biblical doctrine of sin. We have to understand what man's problem is. 
But they describe man's problem in all sorts of ways that's very disconnected from God's explanation of the problems of man. And those two things aren't complementary. That's what we have to see. People are wanting to bring those two things together and say we can make a, you know, a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful whole by these compartments. Those two things are not complementary. It's, it's like, in my view, uh, a Mormon saying, yeah, the Book of Mormon is complementary to the Bible. They're saying two different things. They describe Jesus as two different beings, two different people. They're not complementary. They're, they're actually contradictory. And then we have to decide, do we believe what the Bible claims to be true about man, biblical doctrine, or do we, claim, do we believe what the world says? And then the final thing is, is soteriology. It's a question of soteriology. That just is the doctrine of salvation. So the question is, you know, who is God? Who's man? What's man's problem? Okay, everybody can acknowledge man has a problem. And all of us are after solutions. And in the Bible, that's the doctrine of salvation. Not just justification. Do not limit the doctrine of soteriology to justification only. Oh, it's a massive part. It's a big part. It's what makes Christ distinct from every other religion. So don't deny that. But don't limit it either to the beauty of the doctrine of sanctification and glorification. And what God says he will do and the means by which he will accomplish that full restoration of all that's broken in man. You see, we have a distinct way, Christianly, to think about this that the world doesn't. And we are called to defend, to guard those truths. And how quickly and easily they begin to infiltrate the church just because we don't have an eye toward these things and we think they're two separate categories, faith and science. Right? So I'm not asking you to like, find the devil around every corner. What I'm just trying to say is to be vigilant, to be wise, to understand Christian doctrine appropriately, and to see when we make certain statements about what we think is true in our culture related to man, it has implication because God has already said these things to be true about himself, about man, what man's problems are, and what the solutions are. So hopefully this gives you a biblical category or a category theologically to think biblically uh, in, in other aspects of life, especially when we think about solutions to man's problems. We're dismissed.